I can, I'll write it and we'll do it live. Fucking thing sucks. All right, so it's a live show for this week. So this week we got myself, Mikey Him from the Turn Up This Podcast. And we got Nikki Him and Levi He Him from the Intervention Podcast. We got Brandon He Him and Brian He Him from the Cars and Comrades Podcast. We got Evan He Him from Left of the Projector Podcast. And we've got Brett He Him from Rev Left Radio, Gorilla History, and Red Menace. How's it going, everybody? That, that's what we're everybody. reading the lead. <laughs> yeah, if you, don't, if you haven't noticed that we have a bunch of people on, I don't know why that would be. Now we got one more. And we also have uh, Nat He Him from the uh, Collective Action Comics podcast. That's right. Welcome, Nat. That's what we get for starting early. All right, <laughs> so uh, obviously we're going to be talking about Palestine, but let's start off with the UAW strike because we wanted to just get that out of the way. So who wants to start off? Brandon, did you have something to take us with? Uh, just that uh, you know they've been on strike for for three weeks, and I can go into it a little bit more if you want. But I, I, to a degree, I don't understand it. But they've had some really fucking good tactics. Uh, Sean Fain, best name ever, uh, uh-huh. doing a really fucking good job of leading everything up. And this weekend in particular, they gained a victory that was, uh, dude. I don't know. From what I've read, they had previously uh, GM or uh, whichever plant it was, I can't remember, had effectively said, "No, this is never going to happen." And then uh, they made one hard threat at the negotiating table this weekend, and they caved. Their concession was not going on strike at the plant that they were threatening to go on strike at for the week. Yeah, just a quick note on their, their methods. They were doing something, I believe, that was pretty experimental called stand-up strikes, where they were doing very specific targeted located strikes in very specific plants without making any announcement until the very last minute so that all three of the big three were actually incapable of shifting around their production in a way to prevent those strikes from being incredibly destructive to their bottom line. Mostly true, but actually much better. Um, they did that, but they, from what I've heard, they sort of leaked information to the automakers. Uh, <laughs> and uh, just, just as an example, like, let's say a, a plant that was uh, casting engine blocks was... Like uh, they would, they leaked that this plant's going to go on strike. So at the very last minute, the company loads up all these trucks with all the engine blocks and ships them to another facility where they can be finished. And it turns out that's the facility that's actually going on strike. So now all of the engine blocks are stranded and not allowed to move. Yeah, one of the benefits of of that strategy, of course, is is what you've already said, is about keeping the the bosses on their toes, not knowing what plant's going to strike next. Also, it's a beautiful way to preserve the strike fund so you don't have you know put all that money out at once other people are working and there's only a subsection of the workers who are on strike and then of course it allows you to escalate because if the first thing you do is go all out strike you've played your full hand but here they can continue to say okay you don't want to meet us here you don't want to negotiate we're going to strike at that plant and now we're going to strike at this one so i think it's absolutely a, a really brilliant strategy and approach and it obviously caught the bosses off off guard um, I, I was kind of of mixed feelings about that tactic for the strike, but man, it is being played beautifully. So I, I wasn't sure, but it, he's he's killing it. So I got no criticisms. Bryant, what's up? Uh, I was just going to say quickly. Um, you know, they did that same kind of fake out tactic in the 1930s when the UAW was just getting started. That was when they were a little bit more militant and like throwing door hinges at the uh, the cops and stuff like that. Um, so, uh, you know, maybe that'll happen in the future. Uh, who knows? It was but Walter Ruther came in and ousted all the communists. Exactly. Yeah. And I believe, uh, Brett, you had a good show recently about the UAW strikes. Um, so, uh, if, you know, listeners want to go into more depth, that might be a, a good show to go to. 
Thank you. Yeah. And I would just say something really quick about Sean Fain. I love the militancy of him, and I also love how he tries to um, contextualize the strike in the context of the broader economy, not just on what the workers need in this specific um, industry. And he wrote he wore that Eat the Rich shirt in his latest sort of press release, and he's even talking about tying economic justice to social justice. So really like this broadening of the sphere of solidarity beyond merely the workers on strike and centering that is also a really cool thing to see from unions in the U.S. at least. Levi, what's up? I know it's easy to congratulate union leaders, but it's also worth stating outright that the nameless workers have handled this with the utmost grace and militance. It's hard to execute these plans, and without committed and educated rank and file, it doesn't matter how great Sean Fain is. It matters how great the rank and file is at actually executing any of these plans. Absolutely. Dude, I, I, I still, it, it took me weeks to realize, oh my god, his name is Sean Fain. What the <laughs> fuck? That is so fucking sick. <laughs> Absolutely. I told you I, I used to have a I used to have a girlfriend who worked for Sinn Fein, and uh, they did not give a shit when she came into the office. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like we're just using you to launder money. It's cool. Do what you want. <laughs> Here's a shovel. Go to this beach. <laughs> That's the utopia. So now we're also also coming off the tales of. Uh, the other strike that was won, it was the writers, the WGA won, and the actors are still on strike, correct? Mm -hmm. So it's just a good time for labor right now. Um, I think we also just still have to keep in mind that you got to support the actors while they're still on strike because I think that's kind of the fear from what I'm hearing lately is that because the writer's strike has ended that people are going to forget about the labor militancy and leave the actors kind of to hang. So mm -hmm. careful not to do that. To add to that, um, I, I don't really, I shouldn't even consider myself part of IOTC anymore because I don't think I'll be working in that union anymore. But the IOTC contract is up next year and is expected to have quite a bit of momentum coming off of the writers and actors strike. So I'm really excited to see what happens there. Yeah, just to add to that, the Kaiser Permanente uh, workers, I believe, are mm -hmm. on strike until tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just want to say, I, I briefly went down to the, the local UAW strike yesterday here in Denver and um, was talking to some of the folks there, uh, really cool people. Um, and, you know, people driving past, honking their horns, giving support. So that was a really inspiring, inspiring thing to see. Um, but, yeah, wish I could have spent more time down there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just to uh, kind of piggyback off that, because, Brian, I know you went down there, I think, part of Denver uh, DSA, right? Yep. So a uh, bunch of Denver DSA folks out there supporting at sure, the, Stellantis, yeah. uh, the Stellantis facility and um, previously at the GM facility, although I don't think they were there this week. The point I want to make, though, is just like regardless of what the organization is, go join an organization and get involved. That's how you make connections with yep. real workers. That's how you hear about these struggles mm -hmm. and how you can kind of formulate opinions rather than just posting online and shit like that. Like, but go join an organization. If you can't be part of that union, you can still make good working class ties to form lines of solidarity for, you know, the fights to come. So just get involved one way or the other, whatever is best for you locally. Um, we can if, if we need to edit this out, but uh when we get onto the Palestine stuff, I have the absolute perfect insight into the liberal mindset right now because of a text message I literally just got from my mother. So you know we can put, we can put that in when we need to. Thoughts, I'll see them splattered on a wall. <laughs> now, we can't bury the lead. Just go ahead and start with that because that's what we're going to talk about next. Go ahead. All right. So from, from my mother, I just got – after I sent her <laughs> pictures of me on the truck yelling from the river to the sea – she sent this, uh, I am pro-Palestine, but totally anti-Hamas. 
their terrorism in the past two days against Israeli civilians, including children, young adults, and the elderly, is wildly inhumane. And stop me if I'm wrong, but I just want to say, what do you, what do you think has been happening to the Palestinians for the last nearly hundred years? Yeah. No, I mean, in a similar a exchange, in a similar exchange, I just like kind of nipped it in the bud. I'm like, I am not doing this two sides. Like if we're having a conversation like this, I'm not going down that path with you. I don't have the patience for it. It doesn't make any sense right now. I mean, mm-hmm. just the power imbalance there, which is central to an analysis of this, a real analysis of this, would just kind of just give such lie to this idea that, oh, both sides are equally bad. I mean, Gaza lives under daily fucking violence. I don't want to hear about violence. The Palestinians' mm-hmm. existence in Gaza is fucking violence. I don't know. Like, And again, just to, like, I, I always try to do the thing where it's like, put yourself in the shoes of someone that, I don't know, perhaps had their home stolen their livelihood, their farm taken away from them, and they were put into an open-air prison with 2 million other people in a 150-square-mile strip of land with 97% of the water undrinkable and an 80% poverty rate, okay? And maybe your kid gets fucking killed in a bombing raid. How are you going to behave? Are you going to go ask nicely for your shit back? You're going to hang light over the goddamn wall. Yeah. The Jews that were in German ghettos that resisted had a higher survival rate than the ones that didn't. Damn. Absolutely. And I mean, Palestinians know that they're going to be destroyed either way. Like the slow destruction of being occupied and brutalized every single day. Or, you know, it's it's the old saying, do you want to live on your knees or die on your feet? And they're choosing to die on their feet. And that is a situation that especially all of these conservative types in the u.s they're always talking about liberty and i'm picking up my gun and the tree of liberty must be refreshed with the blood of tyrants and then there's a obvious struggle for basic human rights and liberty and freedom and then eventually everybody's you know hands off this is disgusting but the dialectic of violent conflict begins the moment that israel occupies and starts to oppress the palestinian people everything that happens after that it flows from that initial act of oppression and occupation. And so all these people that want this to end or want to hand ring over Hamas, end the occupation, free Palestine, instantiate a free, secular, democratic state, um, and, and then these problems will go away. But if you don't do that, if you continue the occupation, this is the result. It's, Israel, it's the product of Israel's behavior, not the product of Palestinians, that any of this is happening at all. Absolutely. Evan, did you have something? Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, you know, I think... Talking about the both sides, I think it's, we were talking in the chat beforehand, is all the politicians who supposedly stand for the marginalized are both siding this entire conflict from Omer to AOC. You can pick one, Bernie Sanders, all of them. And their tweets and their thoughts and prayers are all basically just that. I mean, Omer's tweet was, I condemn the horrific acts we are seeing unfold today in Israel against children, women, and the elderly and the unarmed people who are being slaughtered and taken hostage by Hamas, such senseless violence will only repeat back and forth cycle we've seen, which cannot allow to continue. We need to call for de-escalation and ceasefire. will keep advocating for peace and justice throughout the Middle East. And that's just nonsense. I loved watching a fucking Israeli ambassador take that milk toast criticism and use it to decry Ilan Omar as an anti-Semite. Like, these yeah. are the fucking people that we are working with. Like, oh, you, like, you want to talk about, like, stopping violence? Then, you know, st- stop violence where it fucking matters. Like, st- stop the oppressor, not the people who just want food off their throat. Yeah, I mean, 
it's really tough to, uh, at least for me, to try and have any kind of real serious takes. After I listened to Brett, your episode earlier, I'm going to shout it out so no one else has to, and it's like kind of my role here. But like the episode that you did on Red Menace, where you explained this whole conflict, I, get, I just listened to it today, and I cannot think of a better just go to. Just go to that, listen to that episode, take notes, and that will give you all the talking points that you need to like come back at any of these people who never have an opinion until it's in the news cycle. And their opinion always exactly reflects the U.S. state media. It's really just convenient and it really is frustrating because I'm sure that like we are all feeling more and more alienated for advocating basic human rights for all people equally. I don't want to center our feelings and like our rhetoric, but like to watch liberals, you're watching them getting scratched and bleeding fascist like right there in front of your eyes. And it's really just disheartening. Uh, let me go with you, Nat, and then Brandon. Um, so I use my parents as a bellwether for talking to like truly compassionate liberals. Like I credit my parents for giving me a love for people that I have, right? My dad used to work with like quote unquote at risk youth, right? Like my parents both used to teach classes in, in a prison, like in a correctional facility in Georgia, right? To the underprivileged, if you will, the incarcerated. Um, what they believe is good versus what they believe is bad, I think is an excellent um, barometer for the semi-progressive, rather moneyed liberals, right? And so what I'm worried about right now is <laughs> the fact that Zelensky came out and said that Ukraine supports Israel, right? Like my dad had, and I, w I was going to use Israel as, as the wedge to talk to my parents about this stuff, because my dad in May told me that he does not support Israel at all. And now that Zelensky has come out and said that Ukraine supports Israel, my parents are so Ukraine-brained that I imagine the damage it has done. And it just speaks to like the power that we have to combat in terms of like the media narratives that the empire can construct. I mean, it literally is like people don't want to be played like marionettes, but my God, you know, mm -hmm. one tweet from the president of Ukraine and suddenly any kind of progress made on an issue just goes out the window. It's kind of terrifying. Um, I'm more than happy to let everyone say their piece in terms of like just your general like feelings about uh, people's attitudes towards this because they're obviously horrendous. Another thing I'm also interested in talking about is like the sort of geopolitical repercussions of this. And again, I'm reluctant to believe some of the stuff that you just see in memes or like in passing. But sometimes it's just information that's not widely available. Like what we were already seeing that like Taliban wasn't it that uh, was talking about coming and assisting. Was it the was it Hezbollah from Lebanon? Hezbollah. It was Hezbollah. Well, uh, I think both. Mike had posted something else, but I definitely know that I've read that Hezbollah was getting involved. Yeah. So I'm just yeah. I'm interested in people's opinions, like knowledge of what you might know that I don't know, but also opinions on like what, what do we think this is going to be looking like long term or or even like shortish term. Yeah, what what I was I was even saying this um, to my friends and even on uh, the Instagram account is like, let's not forget exactly what you're saying. This geopolitical moment that could easily burst out into at least a regional war. We could easily see that happening, right? With Hezbollah coming in, the U.S. getting sucked in. I mean, Israel is U.S. is really number one ally in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I said that like, world wars have started over much less, and I'm not predicting that we're going to have a world war. But we this is the backdrop of the proxy war in Ukraine against Russia, heightening tensions with China, and now an unprecedented um, sort of a war happening out of nowhere between you know Palestine and Israel. Israel officially declaring war, as you said, Hezbollah 
promising to come in. And so, yeah, this stuff can ratchet up. I mean, World War One started because some Serbian nationalists capped Franz Ferdinand, you know, and nobody thought that that was going to mean every major country in Europe going to war. But sure enough, the dominoes fell in that direction. So I think we're all really focused on the immediate acute situation, but that's kind of in the background menacing all of us. This could be a regional or even a world war. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, I think just in an attempt to bring in a Palestinian voice here, we have an article by Mohammed R. Mawish published today in 972 magazine, and he's a writer that lives and operates out of Gaza. And he writes, and this is quoting, For those of us watching from within the besieged Gaza Strip, the situation has been nothing less than terrifying. Shortly after the attack began, Israel declared a state of war, initiating a relentless barrage of airstrikes targeting a wide range of locations across the Strip, including hospitals, public spaces, and residential compounds. The death toll in Gaza has already surpassed 350, with thousands more wounded, and it appears inevitable that the worst is yet to come. Since news of the first attack emerged on Saturday morning, I have been living in a daytime nightmare together with my life, our two-year-old son, Rafik, my sister, and our parents. In moments of Israeli bombardment, we all huddled together, gripping each other's hands tightly. We try to conceal our fear, wearing a mask of calm, even as the attacks draw nearer. Our prayers, usually so strong, now feel fragile. A stark reminder that we're powerless to protect ourselves. So just to bounce off of what Brandon was saying, this is a moment of fear. Nobody knows what's happening. Nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow. People don't know if they're going to be alive in the next hour. This is truly a moment where history is made. Um, real quick, suppose I can't find too much confirmation, but supposedly... Uh, the Taliban has asked Iran, Iraq, and Jordan to grant them safe passage to Israel. Yeah, they said they were going to go all the way to, uh, where is it, Jerusalem? They said they were going to go all the way to some major city. Yeah, Jerusalem. Just because you mentioned Iran, I mean, when we think about the broader context of this, I think a lot about Iran, right? Iran is constantly being demonized as, with links to, like, Hezbollah, and they're just a boogeyman for yeah. the U.S. broadly. So as we see the U.S., now rolling in, I think, like a naval cruiser with quote-unquote defensive munitions, as they're described, right, to the eastern Mediterranean to help protect Israel. I'm doing this all in scare quotes for the listeners. But I think we have to think about this still in the broader context while still not forgetting, you know, Levi, as you're pointing out here, the struggles of individual Palestinians, right? But, I mean, when we think about Iran, how the U.S. is always trying to demonize and take them down, and now how they factor into the broader context becoming closer with China. Obviously, they've had a great relationship with Russia for a while, right? And then the recent normalization of relationships between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And also on the table, we have this normalization potentially of relations or the recognition of Israel as a state by Saudi Arabia. So, I mean, mm -hmm. there are many, many moving parts in this puzzle right now. And I don't think any of us can fully understand exactly what's going on with this broad picture, but any kind of misstep could lead to a much broader conflagration. Absolutely. And I'll just jump in and say a point I wanted to make earlier when we were talking about the media. And this is obvious to us, you know, pointing out hypocrisy is almost passe at this point because it's so, it's everywhere. Um, but, you know, we've been told for the last year, beaten into our heads, that how dare you say anything against Ukraine? These are people fighting for self-determination against a bigger, more oppressive power. This is about freedom. This is about democracy. All of these people who have been browbeating us for the last year, trying to get us to go along with their proxy war against Russia, are now going to come out and be 100% against the Palestinians, who are, 
in a vacuum, in a very similar situation, a weaker people being dominated by a bigger state, you know, who just want freedom, who just want self-determination, who just want to have a democratic say in how their lives are run, and all of a sudden all of that bullshit evaporates. Like they never meant it at all because they didn't. None of this shit with Ukraine has anything to do with freedom or democracy. Russia, the United States, and Ukraine aren't democracies, so I don't know what democracy is being fought for here. Um, but it, it, it really tells the lie of this pro-Ukraine propaganda proxy war bullshit. That the moment when you can show us intellectual and moral consistency, it flies out of the window. Because the only thing that matters for these people is American power, Western civilization dominating the global south, and all of the tropes of whiteness and white supremacy, and who counts as a human and who doesn't. And it's really, it comes into full stark relief. It's really fascinating that they can maintain the cognitive dissonance here. I'm just going to tell all of the Americans that they're doing Stand Your Ground. Yeah. <laughs> that's really okay, good. Yeah. Um, Brett, I think that's an excellent point. And I think that there's an extra layer of ignorance we can add on to that with when it comes to the Ukraine analysis or, or comparison, right? Like when liberals in America talk about uh, like Hamas doing horrible things to elderly uh, people, young people, stuff like that, you know, essentially the platonic ideal of the civilian, right? That demonstrates a complete lack of understanding of what was happening in the Donetsk region and Luhansk regions and all that. And since 2014 with the shelling and all that, like what do they think Ukraine was doing to these quote unquote separatist areas for the last nearly 10 years, right? Um, yeah. and, and, if, and we don't bring that analysis into it and you pull up that sort of point against what's happening out, just outside of Gaza. It, it truly makes that sort of, that opinion moot to me. I, I can't take that seriously. Yeah. I want to go back to, real quick to this comparison between Ukraine and Israel, because I think, Brett and Nat, you're touching on it as well. But the through line there is this Western values, right? Because they're supposed to be these bulwarks and bastions of Western values, right? As defined by the Western powers. And I think this just kind of leads to the point that you really need to understand what Zionism actually is is it exists to actually comprehend the situation because you know we've done a lot of work on our podcast to kind of show the roots of zionism and zionism is a european a white european settler colonial ideology right i mean we have the founder theodore herzl stating we have quotes from him saying that this needs to be a bulwark to pr protect europe from the asiatic hordes i may be paraphrasing a little bit but that is the sentiment that is the foundation and ideology of zionism and that is what leads to mass displacement ethnic cleansing of palestinians and domination of the region and why israel so nicely fits into this role as a proxy and agent of western imperial power while undertaking its own colonial project on in its own right as well but i mean again there's you have to really to really understand this and to really understand the differences you have to take the time to understand that and you can't just say oh well zionism is judaism if you don't like that then you're an anti-semite or you're anti-jewish and we've got two jewish people in this podcast that can speak better to that than i can so i was just gonna say you kind of took part of the words out of my mouth uh nick was that it's there's often this uh, immediate implication that if you are anti-Zionist, you're also against, you know, you're anti-Semitic. And I've had conversations with people where I don't mention that I'm Jewish. And then they say, oh, well, you don't, you, you must be, you must be uh, anti-Semitic. Like, well, I am Jewish. And then they jump to either you're a self-hating Jew or you're 
their or their brain just explodes, one of the two things, and then <laughs> it just kind of it's hard it's a hard conversation to have to begin with, but yeah, yeah just, I I love that. And so like do you like do you need to see my circumcision? Do you need to see my <laughs> keeper? Like what what proof do you need to see here that I'm Jewish? Other than the fact that I know way more about Israel than you do, apparently. Hey, if that's what required, I could pass too. And, and that person yes, probably same. lives like in New York. Bless you, brother. <laughs> uh, would you, legitimate question. So, like, uh, about the conflation of, of Zionism and, like, Judaism, is that, like, an intentional construct? Like, like did Israel work towards... Yeah. Okay. Look it, at there's a really great podcast by Know Your Enemy on the ADF done with Jewish currents that goes back to the intentional history of the ADF and creating the concept of anti-Semitism to mean anti-Zionism. Didn't really occur until 1972. That was one of those things that seemed like a by the books thing that would be done. Yeah. Yeah. Let me read this uh, little thing I wrote because I actually wrote something that I put out because I wanted people to have an argument against this argument. Right. So I'm going to I'll throw this out there and let me know your, your guys' honest thoughts. I said it's deeply anti-Semitic to try and make all Jewish people synonymous with the state of Israel and to associate them by virtue of being Jewish to its criminal behavior. Zionists are constantly trying to argue that criticism of Israel and attacks on Israel are synonymous with a generalized hatred of Jewish people, and it's a disgusting lie. But it browbeats and tricks naive liberals into ideological submission because it uses the language of social justice and identity politics. The fact is, Israel has countless Jewish critics and always has. And Israel is a settler colonial state, not an entire cultural, ethnic, and religious tradition. Judaism exists and flourishes beyond the conceptual or material confines of Zionism. It always has and it always will. And I think that's how you take on that common talking point. Yeah, yeah the problem is they're not arguing honestly. Like they don't care. You can bring all the facts <laughs> and logic you want. It doesn't matter. Like <laughs> that's true. But for for the people on the fence sitters, the the people that are watching these debates, the people that are still trying to decide, I think that really browbeats a lot of people into backing down from these claims. Like I don't want to be anti-Semitic at all, and I, you know, and, and nobody wants to be. And I hate anti-Semites. That's fascism to me, and I'm against it. But it's really disgusting to make all Jewish people synonymous with Israel. That's actually very anti-Semitic. I, I agree with your point in general, but I, I tend to find that once somebody is like very comfortable conflating the two ideas, they're a little bit past the point where I'm willing to have a conversation with them or, or interact with them at all. It's t to me, it's uh, the ones that I feel very concerned for are the ones who were pro-Palestine and just you know can't stomach the thought that they would use violence. And those are the people that we, I would like, I personally feel like we should try to get to because those are the people whose hearts are in the right place. They're just stupid. Um, like my parents. <laughs> yeah, like who, who like don't understand that the sometimes the appropriate response to receiving violence is dishing it back out. It, it's too much of that you can't mantle the master's house with the master's tools things. Like, no, those if those are the tools you have, those are the tools you use. No, Brandon, by the master's tools, they mean social media, which has been working so well for the Western left. That has been dismantling capitalism like gangbusters, <laughs> as we've seen. And but we have, okay, fair enough. You're one meme away, Mike. <laughs> meme away that episode you had um with allison was just so fantastic because again it went through all the talking points like i didn't even realize how many varieties of zionism there were and you guys detailed like all of the different varieties like revisionist zionism religious zionism secular zionism and i had no idea that they had all basically fallen away to this far-right version of zionism that we all know and love today um i just didn't realize that there were other 
maybe a little more harmless versions of Zionism at some point in the past, but uh, I think it was just because they didn't have the teeth that they have now. They just didn't have the opportunity. And that's also what is so insidious about linking anti-Zionism to anti-Semitism is because, like you said, it uses the language of social justice and opens up so much territory to disguise this actual fascist project as an anti-fascist one just because it has Jewish people at the center of it. It's just really sickening. Uh, Nick, you had something. Yeah, I mean, just to what you said, Brett, I mean, we felt compelled to kind of put out a statement from our podcast just because about 10% of our output has been on Palestine, Zionism, and empire. And uh, just to, you know, quote Levi, like something he says a lot in our series is, you do not speak for me. Like, this Zionist entity does not speak for me, you know? And honestly, like, to the conversation about, like, Idpol, sometimes I'll weaponize Levi against people that want to do that. I'm like, okay, well, here's my Jewish friend that I do tons of hours and hours of work with. Listen to what he has to say. Yeah. Just trot him Honestly. out. <laughs> I'm proud to be cudgel. there for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, definitely. There's a beautiful tradition of Jewish anti-Zionism, and that's completely obscured and eliminated in these arguments by Zionists. And a lot of that has to do with, um, with the class makeup of whichever Jewish person you're talking to or whichever Jewish group you're talking to. Jewish working class groups are typically not Zionist. Yeah, just to talk to these voices that get silenced. So Chaim Zitlovsky published his fourth series article, Zionism or Socialism, a direct response to the growing influence of Herzl, the Zionist organization, and the ongoing First Aliyah. His basic argument was you cannot be socialist and be a member of the Zionist organization, that the one contradicts the other. He wrote a four-series article, and nobody has ever read it. It's not something that people distribute, because his ideal of Zionism lost. That's why we have to be very specific when we say we don't agree with this version of Zionism, because Zionism itself has been entirely appropriated for state creation. It's an imperialist project that has entirely imbibe the concept of Semitism itself. The -hmm. concept is anti-Semitic, as Brett was saying. Yeah. And they, with Ben-Gurion and actually the formation of the state, you know, there were these hearkenings to a socialist labor-centric project, but it was always exclusive and it was always predicated upon expansion and an ethno-state because they were always saying that they needed a Jewish majority. I mean, you can go back to Ben-Gurion's quotes about, you know, what he would do um, with the Holocaust in terms of saving all the Jews or whether he could just take half of them to um, Eretz Israel, as he called it, right? The land of Israel. I mean, it's always been an exclusionary ethno-state-driven project. And it just cannot be, it cannot be socialistic because it doesn't bring people in on a broad basis to have their human needs met. And, you know, they chose, even when we talked about this during the Cold War a little bit, you know, they tried to take this position of, like, non-alignment. But ultimately, like, the basic mechanisms ultimately drove them into the arms of the imperialists as the Cold War and the really hot wars of the Cold War were popping off. Anybody else, like, just constantly think about what the world would look like if instead of Israel, Stalin's Jewish state that he tried to start <laughs> after World War II had, had gained? Azerbaijan. <laughs> it still exists. I, I think that part of what is so telling about the imperial or rather expansionist, I guess best way to put it would be the colonialist nature of the original Zionist project or part of the original Zionist project is the fact that they didn't necessarily care that they went to Palestine. The second contender for where they were going to go was Uganda. Mm-hmm. It was like held to a vote, right? Whether they were going to go Argentina to Palestine. Argentina was on the table too. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was. There were many, was, many candidates. Before Johnstown? <laughs> right. Like they didn't give a shit where they went. Um, it, it, it just as as long as they went somewhere. 
Wow, I never knew that. That's mm-hmm. crazy. Like, that literally just dismantles the entire argument for it. Yeah. yeah. I literally thought Israel was, like, the one. Uh, to complicate that a little bit, uh, that was overwhelmingly voted down in favor of Israel as well. That was Theodore Herzl, as a leader, thought, yeah, we could just do this anywhere. But the people that actually <laughs> believed in him did not buy that argument. Uh, That's why they but, chose Israel. But still, the project itself was one of expansion or colonialism. But one thing before we, I think you wanted to move on to something else, Mike, but I was just going to mention, because you talked about Levi, if, how the idea of being a socialist is kind of incompatible with being maybe the modern version of Zionist. That there, people may not realize there actually are communist parties in Israel right now who have put out statements. I was looking at one a little before we came on that they've put out statements, you know, condemning Netanyahu and condemning a lot of these things. So I don't know how you can square that, or I I guess I don't know enough about them to say that, but I don't know if anyone else, if you know anything about them, Levi. All I know is the history of them during the first Israeli-Arab wars, where the existence of the state of Israel is completely indebted to the fact that the common turn was willing to allow weapons shipments and sales to Israel through Czechoslovakia during their moment of greatest need when the rest of the Western world had left them astray and sort of set them to the wolves, so be it. Um, The Soviets saved them. And it was through this Communist Party of Israel that made that connection and got those weapons shipped in. So you can can thank the Israeli Communist Party for the existence of Israel, more or less, as one of their earliest international allies. Well, their statement actually kind of both sides it too. They condemn the violence on both sides. So I guess that's kind of where they're at. They were legitimately radical up until that point. They had completely worked against the creation of the state of Israel as an ethno-nationalist state until the common turn basically tried to redirect them towards the Israel being a bulwark of socialism within the Middle East. They were basically subsumed into Ben-Gurion's party after that, right, Mapai? Exactly. The common turn told them to start working with the Ben-Gurion party, and they became subsumed in the larger labor party. Oof. I mean, the the left has an incredibly mixed history in Israel, and it's got a lot of contradictions going for it. But that's just to say, again, that the notion of Zionism that prevailed is the Zionism that runs the state. Uh, So that is, it's hard to imagine a world without it. There's actually a great story of a great Jewish encyclopedia that was published just before World War II. And if you try to look up Zionism, it tells it as though it's this pure ethereal thing, and Theodore Herzl is not mentioned. Because he was nobody. Nobody cared about Theodor Herzl. His whole program failed by the time of his death. He's been created as a hero after the fact because his ideology ultimately won and was taken up by the victors. At the time, it was not subsumed that he was going to be the person that created Zionism. He was not going to be the leader of a massive movement that was going to create the state of Israel. That question was truly on the table very late in Israel's existence as a concept. That's crazy. Well, I was going to uh, derail us earlier because uh, I was going to make a joke about um, Palestinians inventing the airborne technical. <laughs> I, th- I just think it's just like a fantastic innovation. Like for a long time, I've really been thinking about how hopeless everyone on the left just seems lately. And I don't know if it's just because we're in year three of like Biden's presidency, getting close to like the election cycle, and therefore everybody's going to get political again. And all the libs are going to come back from brunch and be suddenly progressive again. I, I fully believe that that's going to happen, but I just, being stuck in my far-left bubble, listening to podcasts and looking at memes all day, purely judging by how much I am hearing other podcasts and everybody um, hawk their Patreons now, like, I'm just assuming that 
everyone is going through it. And it also could just be the fact that like inflation is at a ridiculous level and student loans are starting back up and that's why that is also happening. But I just feel like people saw Biden get elected, saw nothing change. And all the people who said they were going to push him left very obviously just went to brunch and did not do anything yeah. to do that whatsoever. Yeah. People are just in a dismal spot. And this is like such a hopeful moment because just like earlier when I was saying that you're watching liberals get scratched and bleed fascist in real time, you are now watching the, what is it that Lenin talked about, like decades happening in weeks because no one saw this coming. Did anybody expect like Palestinians to just wage this onslaught against Israel? Well, Israel sure as fuck didn't. Oh, uh, it's just, I really do enjoy seeing the underdogs win. Everyone loves to see colonized people strike back. And yeah, I guess what I was also getting at is that we should enjoy it while we can because of course, we're already expecting the Israeli backlash. Like, I'm sure it's happening. People... It's, it's happening. happening. Yeah, they're bombing the fucking university. I, I read before we got on air that the death toll for each side is already over a thousand. Yeah, I was going to say I thought the Palestinian death toll was already higher than Israelis for all the media circus about Israeli uh, victims. I'll say first and foremost that, like, if if anything, I'm I'm kind of uh, doomed because uh, I think that there's no coming back for our environment, and that's kind of hard for me to look past. But like. Socially speaking, it's I have a hard time telling where we're at because I exist in my little bubble that I've created, uh, and my bubble is extremely left. Like the most conservative people in my bubble are progressives. But what I can look outside of that and see are the wave of strikes that is two or three years deep. And like I, I hate to say see that the George Floyd like protests and riots didn't go further, but I, I do think that that rage spilled over into something constructive and i objectively see positive things being worked towards and built here and so i i think that that's incredibly hopeful like fuck who the president is like if we have the worst president in the world and an entire population willing to stand up for what we need and want then he's hopeless and i, I don't know what direction we're going but it feels like that one and like to to the thing that scares me is maybe it's uh, uh, I, I've noticed in the past that uh, sometimes I get more nervous when I pay more attention simply because I become more aware of what's going on. But it seems like this is part of a global wave where the Middle East is now as, as tumultuous as it has been in our lifetimes. I'm loving everything I see about Africa kicking out the French, but it creates turmoil uh, and just... Not that there's waves of violence within the U.S., but there is a wave of discontent and fear that, like, you know, as Nat loves to use his parents as an example, I'll use mine. My, my mom was discussing, like, my niece getting her own apartment, and she was like, oh, my God, I can't believe how expensive things are. I, these kids don't make any... Like, my mom is moderately conservative. She doesn't really talk politics, but I know enough to know I don't want to talk politics with her. And she will still just go on about, like, how, how can anyone afford rent making the amount of money these kids are making? And I'm like, hell yeah, Mom, keep, st stay mm -hmm. on that thread. So I do see a global wave of discontent that is both frightening and uplifting. I think the important thing is, and obviously these union gains are, are incredible and everything, but we need to connect the, the, these labor movements here to a broader anti-imperialist movement. Right. I mean, we can't have a labor aristocracy here while we continue to rally around the flag and, you know, supporting proxy wars and, you know, funding to Israel to destroy Gaza. 
right? I mean, we need to build these connections. Um, as hard as that is, but I, I really think that's the only thing, inter, an international bent, you know, within the labor movement is the only thing that's going to take us out of the situation that we're in right now. Absolutely. And there has to be the, this momentum that carries that forward. You can't just rely on something like the George Floyd uprisings to carry us through. Every ounce of energy that is there, that is genuine, will ebb away unless we actually make deliberate moves towards an actual organizational structure. Dude, what scares me is the Pat Sock shit, too, because it feels so reminiscent of things that were done in the 60s and 70s to crush movements that had real momentum and power. And so that's, that's another front that the left has to fight on, is to know when to compromise because sometimes it is necessary, and know when it's never okay to be a fascist sympathizer. Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think what the, obviously what the U.S. needs more than anything is a real communist party. Um, yes. One with mass support, one that's national in scale and thus can be international in relation to other movements. We need to build that party. We have a bunch of small organizations. They're all doing great work, but they're localized. They're split off from the masses. There's no unifying force. Um, and so I think that's the goal of American communists today is to continue to try to figure out how we can build a real communist party you know, in the vein of the people that came before us. But the the bigger thing, I think, in the, in the U.S. context, and this is an argument I've been uh, making for a little while here, is I, I believe that we're in the ramp up to the fourth great American crisis. The first great American crisis culminated in the Revolutionary War. The second great American crisis culminated in the Civil War. The third great American crisis culminated in the Great Depression, World War II, and then the New Deal neoliberalism dismantled anything positive about the New Deal, right? We're li we were living in sort of counter-revolution to the New Deal for the last 40 years. We're living in the wake of that. And now we look around the country, no matter whose parents are on what side of the spectrum, everybody has the same beef. Everybody has the same problem. 70% plus of Americans want a different option than the Biden and Trump Democrat versus Republican bullshit. You know, the legitimacy of institutions that have always had a certain level of legitimacy since the founding of this country are completely delegitimized. Young people coming up know that their future is at stake, while boomers can bury their head in their comfortable homes that are six times the price that they bought it for and ride this bitch out. You know, Gen Z coming up knows goddamn well that, that by the time they're 30, 40, 50 years old, what will the world look like? You know, and, and what crises and wars will environmental catastrophe cause? And every one of those earlier previous instantiations of a crisis all had to culminate in a war, which is worth noting, but all also had a 10 to 20 year upramp of tensions heightening, of polarization, of inequality getting worse, of corruption in government, of the delegitimization of, of previously legitimate institutions. And we've seen this pattern happen. And so I don't know what's going to give something in the late 2020s, early 2030s. It could be the culmination of a third world war. It could be something like a civil war. It could just be an environmental collapse that causes a global economic depression. Um, but I, I, and, and what comes out of that crisis is going to depend on how organized we are going into it. Because you don't Absolutely. build a party in the midst of a crisis. You can only build organizations prior to a crisis, and then the crisis puts pressure and sees just how strong that organization or that party really is. And I think we're living in that moment. And these little lulls that we feel, these moments of like, oh, Biden's in and nothing's really changing, but 
it's enough of it's enough of uh, moderation to sort of tamp down like really progressive risings ups that we saw under Trump. I think these lulls also occur in these ramp up periods where there's like a heightened moment of of insanity, like the Trump election and like COVID. Um, and then there's a little lull that happens for a couple of years, and then a new um, event comes onto the horizon in, in the U.S. and and just racks the entire society once again. And you, we can see society buckling under these crises, and they're not going to stop. Um, so that's simultaneously a pessimistic and an optimistic um, position because the, we're going into a crisis. It's going to be really fucking ugly. It already is. But also a million doors of opportunity will open as well. Yeah, just to build directly off of what Brett's saying, if something like George Floyd's death or the impending massive crackdown in Palestine creates a spark, unless there's a ton of kindling, which would be the spade work of organization on a party level, it will just be a spark that goes out in darkness. It's hard to remember, but last major atrocity by Israel last year actually saw a significant popular interest in the United States in reprimanding Israel and supporting Palestine, but it didn't go anywhere. Just to say, there is humanity out there buried under the collective grime of capitalist browbeating. We just need to do the work to reveal it so that it can catch fire whenever there's another mass protest. I read somewhere once that one spark will start a fire. <laughs> I used to have a Boy Scout t-shirt that literally had a bonfire on it and it said one spark will start the fire because they did not know what that was from <laughs> <laughs> Levi I was actually going to bring up what you had said in our New Deal episode was that it's there is hope in that we don't know the future exactly we can plan for the worst and hope for the best but I, I, I remain an optimist I remain a staunch optimist. Every time I come back from an action, I feel energized. I feel, um, I feel hopeful. There's, 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 there's nothing in the world like being with like-minded people and, and organizing towards a goal. But the key is not to be passively optimistic. Of course. That's why I'm optimistic is because I try to be active about it. Right. Be, be massively optimistic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to clarify what I was saying earlier, like the reason I brought up Biden and his election and the election cycles is not because it's the thing that affects the politics the most. It's because it's just what is in the most people's minds, like in the minds of normies. They think about politics when there's election coming up. And that's like all of politics to most people. And I think they're going to care very much again, like the liberals will, when a conservative gets back in office and they will find themselves suddenly in the position of being leftists again. They will insist that they were always here, even though we didn't see them for like the last four or eight years. They will pretend that they were always here. And I also just bring up the whole thing about like, Palestinians, because I think our job should be as leftists and communists to show people the hopeful side of it, to try and break through like their inherent xenophobia or racism or just like American kind of patriotism that they feel like they have abandoned as progressives, but they really haven't, which is why they still kind of feel like every other country is a little bit worse. It's like they have this inherent xenophobia that I would love for us to be able to get through because. The way that most people in America feel about direct action or radical change is that they feel it is totally hopeless and cannot happen in their lifetimes until something actually happens. Like they are literally living through the fascist revolution. Like I hate to say it, but the fascists make a lot of progress because they don't care about process. They don't care about institutions. They don't care about rules. They just push. And then they get what they want because this is an inherently right-wing country. So it's easy for them to not be too commandist, like ahead of the culture, because the culture will turn right to follow them. I just think that leftists should take examples from other countries and show what works. And I'm not saying, like, strap incendiaries to, like, your hang glider. I'm just saying, like, taking examples of, like, what Palestinians <laughs> were doing maybe up to that point, like how they were organizing before then, because 
there are lessons to be learned from other countries if you can just kill the cop in your head if you can kill the colonizer in your head and actually start looking to god forbid some brown people for the example of how you should possibly be organizing your direct actions and everything would you have brandon uh, just just to correct one thing that you said, because if we're going to be optimists, I feel like it's important to note. You said that we're an inherently right-wing country. And worth noting is that we're not an inherently right-wing country, especially if you look at our history in the 19th century. We're a country who has had a nonstop battle waged against the left. So it feels inherently right-wing. But we're a very left-wing country at times. Just at times. And many times. But... You know, if the entire weight of the government's force is is exerted upon us, then yeah, we struggle. Yeah, but that's what it takes to slow us down. That's how fucking strong we are. I just want to um, not to. I don't want to undercut that because that's just a very good point. But uh, speaking of the hang gliders, I did see something very good today where somebody uh, called them the ghost of Gaza, <laughs> <laughs> which fucking got me. That got me so good. So I think speaking directly to what Brandon was getting at, and there is some irony to what Nat said about not knowing the future, because I study history because we also don't know the past. Because the good things we learn about in popular culture in high school, for our example, about the New Deal, is that Daddy Roosevelt brought the revolution down from on high. In reality, Roosevelt was pushed at every single step to go further. Biden will not give us anything. Roosevelt did not give us anything. It's our job. It's the left's job to constantly demand more. If we're expecting them to give us anything, they've already won. That's the cop in your head telling you to wait for them to give it to you. They're not going to do it. They're never going to do it. They never have done it. The left has always pushed for more. The left has always existed in this country. Every time I study anything about history, not leftist history, not just just history. My, my thing is 1900s American history. And you only have to read so far before you it comes out that like oh there was actually this huge communist movement socialist movement within this union within uh, this faction teens 20s 30s 40s 50s 60s 70s it wasn't it wasn't genuinely until the 80s when i stopped seeing that sort of information pop up so yeah it takes a lot of work it takes the fbi cia cops and everyone working together to keep us down and you know what they only did it for a couple of decades because that's just coming back. That's right. I, I, exactly I hate to right. see how few national parties there are, but they don't start national parties. Hell, PSL's running a, a fucking presidential candidate. Do they and stand a, a candidate for CD14 in Los Angeles, I'd just like to point out. Oh, yeah. And the other thing is, like, I want to just add with the organizations because I know there are a few. I mean, I, you all know I'm part of PSL. But, like, right now, join the one that you can you know, that looks good that you can get at locally. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because if you're sitting around just critiquing online, the organizations that are out there, you're, you're doing the wrong thing. You're waiting for the perfect thing in your online ideology to come along is not the answer at this moment right now. So yeah, fucking do with, something, you know, work with whoever you can, unless it's socialist alternative, fuck them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or the Republican party or the Democrats. Uh, I, I would like to, if I could contribute to my through line through this episode, right? I've been composing a response to my parents, and I'd like to get your opinions on it. Uh, so far, I have, Israel has done so much worse to Palestine every single year since 1947. And obviously it goes farther back than that, but uh, Palestine has tried every legal avenue to fight back, and they haven't ever worked. Gaza is the largest open-air prison in the world, and only 3% of their water is potable. 
death and disease run rampant there because the Israeli government won't allow medicine in. Every day, Israel destroys the homes of Palestinian citizens so that Remax can build cheap houses and sell them to Americans and Europeans. They bulldoze hundred-year-old olive trees and put cement in freshwater wells that Palestinian communities rely on for water. Resistance is not terrorism. You have to understand that Israel is a tank and Palestine is a teenager with a rock in a sling. Every single altercation between the Israeli government and Palestine has resulted in overwhelming Palestinian death versus Israeli ones. Uh, it should be Israel is a tank and Palestinians are tankies. <laughs> Tankettes. No. And, that's, and that's great. And one thing I want to add here is that this is being framed as like a Hamas action. This is not yeah. solely Hamas action. This is a broad-based action, and Hamas is just one of the tools that are just in the hands of the Palestinian people at this point in time. And really guess what? As a result of the Israeli state deciding that these fundamentalists were less dangerous than a secular, socialistic organization that was forming in the 70s and 80s through the PLO. Okay? So blowback for you all over again if you don't like Hamas. This is what you fucking asked for. Yeah, but again, Hamas. I want to I want to emphasize that it's not just Hamas. Sorry, Brett, to cut you off there. No, you're right. I was just going to build off what you said. Hamas is a product of Israel, and then anybody that says, "Hey, I want to I support the Palestinian cause, but I just don't support Hamas," well, then you're you're just trying to do some third way bullshit. You're just trying to like get your wiggle your way out of the contest because these are the objective material forces. You don't have to love Hamas. You don't have to agree with Hamas. It's the revolutionary spear point of the Gaza Strip in particular and of Palestinians in the in the area in general. And so, yeah, it's not ideal, but just as you said, Israel crushed previous iterations that were more socialist, that were more communistic. The only thing I would say to add to your parents and anybody talking about this uh, this conflict is try to universalize things. Like, just say that, do you believe every human being deserves democracy? Do you think every human being should be able to have the freedom of movement, the freedom of speech? Do you think every human being has the right to self-determination? Yes or no? Because if you answer yes to those questions, then you have to support the Palestinian cause. And you can logically put them into a corner. Do you agree with this or not? Is it for all humans or just white humans? Right? And then they'll have to admit that they support all the principles that is behind the Palestinian resistance. Damn right. Yeah. Uh, another thing I, I probably should have mentioned earlier, and maybe we all know, I, I don't know. Um, what uh, this happened, and Israel immediately declared a state of war and launched a counterattack. And one of the things that they targeted was hospitals. So whoever wants to play, you know, I don't support Hamas's actions can just go fuck themselves because they're the underdog striking at any target that they are able to affect. And yes, it is tragic. Maybe. Uh, there was a whole apartment full of people who actually really don't support Zionism and they were just born there and whatever. And that's tragic. It's tragic 100% of the times that those people die. But war doesn't have zero innocent casualties ever. And when you look at a state like Israel or fucking America, any war we wage is 50% those casualties. So, yeah, you can't play both sides and say, like, I don't support Hamas because they killed innocent people. Like, well, they killed innocent people either on accident or because that was the only option presented to them as to where Israel does it routinely every day, every year. This is and a monthly fucking occurrence. Up, they will escalate it to a degree that it is war crimes. 
immediately. Skip any interim. They will go straight to the most severe thing they can do. So, so yep. why are they the good guy? Because they're democratic? Uh, so also, just like the piggyback off statements about going with organizations that actually have community buy-in. So this is sort of indirectly defending the concept of Hamas. But when I was briefly paid well to be a professor, students would approach me about creating political organizations to reach out to the community to organize. I would always ask them what organizations already exist in these communities. This would blow their minds. This isn't meant to be a criticism of these kinds of people. They're young, they're kids, or if they're approaching the concept of organizing in the left early on, it's scary. Sometimes you think you need to create something new. But if you cannot find an organization, you need to look harder. They exist. They're out there. Brandon's comment on socialist alternative aside, if they really aren't, <laughs> then maybe you actually do need to go out there and make them. But these organizations do exist. They need your help. They need your small money donations. They're out there. I'm sold, but how do I... <laughs> not through Venmo, not through Venmo. I yeah, bought dude. I bought an instrument. I bought a, a drum that had a, a Cuban flag on it. And I said on Venmo to the guy that I bought it from on this, the yard sale that this is for Cuba and the synthesizer I bought. And immediately I got a notification that said, your Venmo transaction has been flagged. Wow. <laughs> if you send money to Hamas, the FBI will knock on your door the next day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The last thing I guess I've just on like a more maybe dour note, just to highlight the Israeli reaction is that Netanyahu went on TV and said, Palestinians, you need to leave there because we're going to bomb every hole that Hamas is hiding in or something like that. I saw said. that. Okay. So the first question is, where do you want these people to go if you've got them quarantined in Gaza and you don't want them to fight their way out? Okay. Mm -hmm. The second thing is, is this is, this is just basically cover for bombing every building in Gaza. As we've seen in history from, you know, the Israeli basically conquering of the territory of Palestine to what the U.S. did in Vietnam, anywhere that could justifiably in their minds be called a haven for terrorists, quote unquote, is a target for bombing. And he's saying that the entirety of the Gaza Strip is a target. He got he just, what he always wanted. So just... Keep this in mind that, like, these people really have no way out but through. The, uh, the thing I want to end on, I'll, I'll let you go, Brian, but I just want to end on this. Like, it's just, I have to shit on liberals once again. I really think the core difference between materialists, like people who actually want change, and liberals is that they actually want it, even at the cost of their own material conditions. Because if you talk to liberals, they always advocate for a fictional third solution that cannot happen, that is perfect. Whether it comes to the crisis in Ukraine, whether they say we should support the working classes of both countries and not support either Russia or Ukraine via the US, um, even though there is no viable third, there is no third group that is doing that. It is only Russia and the US and Ukraine in a proxy war. There is no third group that is battling. But when it comes to just anti-imperialism general, even if it comes to like any possible issue, if you just want to talk about environmentalism, if you talk to a liberal, they would say, oh, it comes down to individual actions and we should all just do this. Whereas if you just talk to them logically, you will inevitably arrive at the conclusion that the U.S. military and the military industrial complex is the single biggest polluter. And then all the businesses and corporations that that military industrial complex props up through imperialism and like the finance capital of the United States, that is the majority of the pollution. So the actual realistic solution would be to support 
the coalition of anti-imperialist countries who actually have a realistic solution for dismantling that military industrial complex of the U.S., which no other group has. There is no other coalition that could possibly do that in this reality in our lifetime. So you should be an anti-imperialist if you are an environmentalist. That just makes logical sense. And whether it's like the Palestine and Israel situation, when you talk about the fictional two-state solution that is peaceful for both sides, like that does not exist. You should support the anti-colonialist, even if it means critically supporting Hamas. And that's the difference between us is that we are able to critically support. We can recognize the flaws in China and Russia, Hamas, Palestine, whoever it is that we are critically supporting because they are objectively correct, we can still criticize them and support them, whereas liberals claim to be the critical supporters of the best solution that never fucking exists. And, and that's, I'll end it by saying, like, if you feel hopeless, if you feel like radical change is not possible, it's not possible for you because you cannot imagine hang gliding into, like, occupied territory and doing something revolutionary because you have never experienced real struggle. You are advocating the path you're advocating because you are comfortable in your position and you don't actually want things to change. And all this emotion that you feel towards leftists where you hate them and you call them red fascists and think they're just as bad as everyone else, that is an emotional reaction to being called out on your very obvious privilege. So let me go with Levi and then Brian, and then we can... Sorry, I'm keeping everybody too long. This might be like a final remark on my end. So there's a statement made, we are deeply concerned over the current escalation of tensions and violence between Palestine and Israel. We call on relevant parties to remain calm, exercise restraint, and immediately end the hostilities to protect civilians and avoid further deterioration of the situation. The fundamental way out of this conflict lies in implementing the two-state solution and establishing an independent state of Palestine. That comes directly from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the People's Republic of China. So there you go, liberals. The communists believe in the two-state solution, so you better abandon it immediately. Why did you do that? (laughs) How dare you? Don't don't do things that make me sad about China. (laughs) I mean, what else do you expect China to do at this particular point in time? They're walking a very fine line. That's why it's critical support. Critical support. Exactly. Would you have Brian? Sorry. Uh... Just a couple quick things. I was kind of hoping that Rashida Tlaib had said something on Twitter, but uh, she hasn't. I think she's just keeping her head down. Um, And then I also did see that um, speaking to what someone was saying about escalation earlier, that uh, Lebanon and Israel have been trading uh, artillery fire across the border. So uh, that might that seemed kind of limited, but maybe that'll escalate in the future. Who knows? Yeah. Damn. All right. Nat, real quick, and then we're going to wrap it. I think I'm just going to text my mom, Hamas is good, lol. <laughs> Send her their oh, Venmo. Yeah. <laughs> Don't put your mom in prison. <laughs> Unless she doubles down. <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much, everyone. This is so much fun. I'm going to end it here. Brett, you thank guys. you so much for joining us. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Bye.